Welcome to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. Hey, are you uh, one of those people who uh, is really concerned about the future of our nation and our world? Does it keep you up at night? Do you often wonder where are we going? What's it going to be like for future generations? Have we lost what it means to be civil in civilization? Hi, I'm Ken Hunter, and I think that the church has a key role in stabilizing the runaway, down-the-toilet direction of our civilization. And I hope you do, too. I pray you do, and I pray God will raise up a number of people to do that. I'm founder of Church Doctor Ministries and author of the book, Who Broke My Church? Seven Proven Strategies for Renewal and Revival. And we've been in several episodes six so far, about the 95 theses for the new reformation of the church. And we're looking at this issue from the perspective of it's time to clean house of all the uh, clutter that is keeping the church from being that powerful body of Christ that God has called it to be. So here in episode number seven, We're going to take a look at the 95 theses, a set of them, starting with theses number 59 and going through theses number 69. So here we go. Are you ready? Number 59. Many Christians have come to believe two lies. Number one, it is the pastor or staff's job to grow the church. And number two, most unchurched people are not interested in spiritual matters. Now, these are lies, and uh, the enemy is the father of lies, according to the Bible. So where do you think this comes from, huh? I think that if you are going to cripple the church, and if you are the enemy of the church, if you were Satan, what would you do? You would convince God's people of two lies that incredibly disrupt the potential of the Christian movement. That is, first of all, that we have professionals to do the job of ministry, and the rest of us just sit around listening to messages and having bazaars and other issues that drain our energy but don't change our nation. And secondly, this lie is that unchurched people are not interested in spiritual matters. We would uh, say to the contrary, and we encourage people in churches where we work with these churches in a a three-year process called Healthy Churches Thrive. It's actually a spiritual movement within the church. In that process, there's a time when the people are ready, and we introduce to them a prayer challenge. And that challenge is that simply when you go to a restaurant, ask the waiter or waitress if they're open to share anything, you're going to pray for the meal, is there anything you'd like us to pray for you? Of course, one of the reasons we do that is we want to help Christians practice going public, recognizing that it's not just the pastor's job. Pastor and your staff aren't going to meet every waiter and waitress that needs to know Jesus. So planting a little seed by asking if there's anything you'd like to have us pray for while we pray for the meal is a great way to help Christians go public. And also the second item here in 59 is that unchurched people are not interested in spiritual matters. It's just amazing what people will discover. And that is most of these people, like most of the people in the country, are not practicing Christians. Some of them are very far from God. 
untouched by the influence of any church at any time in their lives, and they will give you something to pray for. And that helps people realize that people are more interested in spiritual matters than the lie makes you believe. Wow, Hollywood, the news media, just the marginalization of the church in the public realm makes us believe that no one is interested. In fact, they would be adamant. They would be angry if you brought up any spiritual matter, like prayer for their needs. And you know what? That is a lie. It is just not true. Thesis number 60. Consequently, based on 59, Christians abandon thousands of opportunities every day among their relationships in their social networks. When we uh, ask people in churches, what is your personal mission field? They don't even know what we're talking about. They're just blinded again by the enemy and by this false lie. They've worked themselves into a uh, extracted view of the world where they are Christians on Sunday and that's where Christians meet. But beyond that, you just better keep it hidden and below the surface. And it's just not on the radar of most Christians that they are the missionaries. They are the people that are there with the most wonderful opportunities in their social networks. And so the church as an institution or pastors or church workers that are staff people, they're not going to meet all the people in your social network. That's not how the kingdom works. And so it's just not on the radar, as I said. And so this is a cultural issue. We have cultural blinders about our social networks, and that'll preach, that'll teach, and people need to be opened up to the wonderful possibilities of how Christianity really works. Christians abandon thousands of opportunities every day among their relationships in their social networks. Number 61, the majority of churches have failed to contextualize the styles and delivery systems of faith to the contemporary culture in which they live. I'll read that again. It's a little long. The majority of churches have failed to contextualize the styles and delivery systems of faith to the contemporary culture in which they live. Hey, the world changes every day. And change changes every day. It's increasing all the time. It's really sad that we have all sorts of delivery issues in the Christian faith. There's preaching, there's teaching, there's church buildings, there's songs, there's prayers. There's all sorts of elements that are delivery systems. And delivery systems change. I don't doubt there's anybody probably anymore. I doubt there's anybody that would be alive today that perhaps remembers the day when there was no telephone. Now, of course, we are just absolutely bombarded by communication systems. And the world that wants to move forward and wants to reach people uses those new systems. The systems aren't sacred. There's quickly probably coming a day when no one will have a home phone anymore. Most people don't already. They just have their cell phones. Some of them have two, one that's blocked for the real important calls and the other one that's not. And so look at the enormous amount of change in contemporary delivery systems. 
And so our world is constantly changing. But so many churches have failed in many ways to contextualize, to be in the context of our present culture in the way that they present the truths of Scripture, which never change. The truths never change, but the delivery systems absolutely must, or you never get the truth across to people who need to hear it. I was just the other day at the YMCA in a local town nearby. I was actually attending an Alpha class. Alpha is a great ministry for introducing people to consider the claims of Christ. And it has some videos that are absolutely astounding. And then you speak with one another in small groups. It's very non-threatening. And it's usually best presented on a neutral setting like a community YMCA. But I was talking to this lady, and she hadn't been there before. She was new to the series of videos that were being shown. And so I just said hi to her and welcomed her, and I asked her where she was from, and she said, well, I actually have a church. I just don't go to it, but it's uh, in another nearby town. I said, well, how's your church doing? She says, oh, it's just awful. This look came on her face like a relative was dying, and that's exactly what was happening. The body of Christ in her situation is dying, and it's down to a handful of people. And I said, oh, that's just too bad. And then she just said, you know, we can't even afford an organist anymore. She said, I just miss the organ. Apparently, they're having some other kind of music. And she said, I just miss the the organ music and the old hymns. And here's a lady that has put her faith in the delivery systems And this is not a major condemnation of this poor woman, but she just doesn't get it. And she has put her faith in the delivery systems rather than in the person of Jesus Christ and the content that he taught. And this is very common. We see this everywhere. And so who's killing the church? Well, part of the answer is there are some great Christian people who were never trained and equipped to understand their own faith, what is essential, what is non-essential, that are killing the church. And if I told her that, she would absolutely have a heart attack, I'm sure. But the truth is, we have to tenderly help people pass this idolatry of delivery systems. Theses number 62, many church buildings reflect old-style architecture, This medium sends a message. So as you look at these churches, many of them patterned after the 1950s or before. Some of them patterned after the 1800s or even earlier from Europe with tall steeples and with all sorts of nuances that people don't understand and they fall in love with their building. And I get that. But are you really going to let this stuff stand in the way? Now, as I've said in earlier theses, the building isn't what it's all about. And as people are sent out from the building, that's really important. But the building is an eyesore in the mission of Christianity to reach people who are not yet Christians. It is literally a deterrent. Not just the building of where you worship, but all these buildings are like 
outdated and relics in our world today. And so it's just a symbol of how we are stuck on old style stuff. And in the last thesis, I talked about the YMCA. I want to go back to that facility where I was with the lady and shared with her at the Alpha class. In that same town, there was a YMCA building that for years was stalled. It was old, it was out of date, everything about it inside was out of date, and hardly anybody really went to that YMCA. It's an ugly building, it's still there. They remodeled it into apartments for people that are on the low social economic scale, and so that's where they live. But as an attractive place where people can come and work out, it just absolutely was an eyesore to the community. And so what they did is some corporate sponsors came together and they built this new facility. Well, it wasn't very long and the thing was so packed out, they added on and more than doubled the size. And no matter when you go by there, the parking lot is just filled. It is a gathering place for the community. There is activity all the time. The facility can be a roadblock. It's just amazing that church people don't get this. It just is a tragedy. Number 63, Christianity in every nation goes through spiritual cycles. Now, I want to include this in the theses because this is really important. And I'll give you several parts of this cycle. But there's more to this thesis that I want to mention before I talk about the parts of the cycle. So the first part is Christianity in every nation goes through spiritual cycles. The next part is when Christianity flourishes, the defining element is faithfulness of God's people to the culture taught by Jesus Christ. The values, the beliefs, the attitudes, the priorities, and the worldviews that come together and create that DNA that makes you a kingdom person who is not of this world, in the world, but not of the world. So that's the thesis. Let's talk about the elements of spiritual cycles. First of all, there's the decline of civilization. And in that stage, God sends people to be prophets. And sometimes, though I consider myself to be a church consultant, when I see people saying ouch to some of the things I say because it's taking them out of their comfort zone, I recognize that there's a prophetic element of that as well. You know what happened in the Old Testament over and over again. God sent prophets for people to be kind of shaken out of their lethargy and called to change their direction. And so prophets do just that. They say repent. And the word repent literally means change directions, man. Change directions, woman. And so when things deteriorate in the civilization and people fall away from faith in great massive movements, then the prophets come along and say, we can't go on this way, guys. You're spelling doom for your children and your grandchildren. So what happens is, at first, some people ignore the prophets, and uh, I've been there and done that, been uh, the recipient of some ignoring. And then what happens is, uh, after a while, though, a few people, to start with, show some receptivity. So then the cycle begins with a small group of people that represent the next part of the cycle, which is a period of receptivity. 
these people are pretty much described as people who have holy discontent or spiritual restlessness, which I've outlined the elements of that in the book, Who Broke My Church? And so as people are fired up and they're here and there among the Christians who have this holy discontent or spiritual restlessness, they just say, I don't know why our church can't be growing. We've got to be doing whatever it takes to see our church flourish again. That's the spiritual restlessness or holy discontent. And so that's another step in this cycle, and it's the step of receptivity. And that actually leads to a changing of direction. Hey, we've got to figure this thing out. We've got to make some changes. And we've got to do it gently, and we've got to do it in love, and we've got to be very careful. We don't blow up our church. Nobody at Church Doctor Ministries wants to blow up a church. There are other people that do that, but... We don't do that, but very carefully, very slowly, very methodically, very sensitively, very lovingly make some changes, starting with the culture of the church, the spiritual cultural issues, the values, beliefs, attitudes, priorities, and worldviews. And so that takes place. And then the next part of the cycle is that churches and Christians experience renewal and God responds to their prayers as they are renewed people and that in turn leads to the next part of the cycle once there are lots of people in lots of churches that experience renewal and pray for revival the next step is God responds and there is a revival God brings revival explosive growth to the kingdom of God and that of course impacts the civilization. So that's 63. 64 builds on this a little bit, and it goes like this. During the seasons of spiritual downturn, those early days in the cycle, during the seasons of spiritual downturn, many Christians lose the element of miracle faith, as described in Hebrews 11. Now, I made up that word, and I hope it doesn't make you think that I'm some sort of a wild man about Christianity, but the truth is, if you read Hebrews 11, it's there for a reason. And I'm telling you, you need to go back and read that. By faith, these heroes of the faith, that's what they've become. Hebrews 11 is the Hall of Fame from the Old Testament. It is the people that believe God to do the impossible— People like Abraham, who God said, go off and start wandering around. I'm going to take you to a place you have no idea where you're going. I mean, that takes faith to just get up and leave your area, including all your all the belongings and all the cattle and all the other people that are part of your extended family. That's just amazing. Or Noah, who is asked by God to build a, an ark on dry land, nowhere near a lake, let alone an ocean. And he spends a good amount of time doing that probably took a lot of flack from his neighbors, wouldn't you think? But these people were willing to believe God at a miracle level. And that's a different kind of faith than saving faith. There are different levels of faith described in the New Testament. One of them is saving faith. And there are a lot of people who are literally no good to God for reaching the world for Jesus. But they have saving faith. They trust in Jesus as their Savior to forgive their sins and know the way to eternity and love the Lord and are faithful to him. And so that's one level of faith. But there's this other level of faith that says, you know, God can do anything, which the other people will say, but they don't really 
really, really show that, demonstrate that they really believe that. And so what happens is some of the supernatural occurrences, like healing, they don't experience. And all churches are this way. They just don't have anybody that is supernaturally healed. And so there's this subtle idea that, well, you know, God doesn't just do that anymore. That's something from the past. There's nothing in the Bible that gives evidence of that, that that's all going to, to stop. I honestly believe, having been an observer of churches and Christianity for many decades, I absolutely believe that the biggest deterrent, if you've never seen a healing, is probably because you and the people around you, subconsciously maybe, subtly, very likely, abandon that God really continues to do these high-level miracles, or whatever you want to call them. Now, I believe that becoming a Christian is a miracle. I believe that baptism is a miracle. I believe that as God restores a person through forgiveness, all of those are miracles. But these that go beyond your rational thinking. And what happens in a renewal is that God, in a miraculous way, if I can use that word, restores your confidence in what God can do. And it's interesting because the word confidence comes from the Latin confidie. The word confidence literally means, if you unpack it, with faith. That's what the word confidence means, with faith. And with more faith, people begin to say, you know, maybe I ought to think a little wider about the limits of what God is doing today. Number 65, what happens in a downturn continues here in number 65. Here it is, thesis number 65. Prayer is formalized with routine formulas spoken from rational memory rather than spiritually moved hearts. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to offend anybody by saying, well, you know, if you say the Lord's Prayer, you know, it's sort of routine. And it can become routine. And I'm not judging that it is routine. That's really a matter of your heart, your mind, and your approach rather than the fact that you still say the Lord's Prayer. I think the Lord's Prayer is great. It ought to be in modern English, which a lot of people are still hanging on to words that don't have any meaning in our culture today, which is another issue. But that isn't the issue of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is great. However, there is this spontaneity of prayer, this ability to pray from your heart and just let go and let God. And a lot of people just have not been willing to be equipped or to let God equip them to just pray spontaneously on the spot. And it is part of the intimidation that Christians feel from our secular culture. And so it means that they refrain from sharing their faith or praying with someone on the spot. And actually that fear is imagined and unfounded. Let's look at thesis number 66. Most Christians have not been discipled, or you might say equipped, to share their faith or pray for someone spontaneously. And you might say, well, wow, if it's spontaneous, how do you equip someone like that? Look at how Jesus operated. If you have someone with you who has never done that, and you are discipling them, and they see you do that, they are going to, sooner or later, catch what can't be taught. It's not an academic deal. It's not a program. It's a culture. And that's how people learn to be spontaneous prayers. They learn it in the discipleship process. Number 67, 
Every revival is preceded by fervent prayer. Now, you can't manipulate God because God is God. So you can't say, if I pray for revival, I'm going to make God make it happen. That's bad theology. That's not looking at the Bible the right way. But you can say that God does admire and honor prayer. He does hear prayer. He does listen to prayer. We know all those things from Scripture. And so you can say that prayer doesn't promise revival, but every revival that's ever taken place, you might notice, is preceded by a whole bunch of people just praying their hearts out, saying, God, we need revival. So what we like to do with people early on when we work with a church in a spiritual movement over a period of three years in what we call this Healthy Churches Thrive, I mentioned before, is we like to ask them to do something really simple early on in the movement in their church. And that is, even if they have to write themselves a note to remember to do it, pray every day, Lord, bring revival beginning with me. And uh, that doesn't mean you need revival if you're a Christian, but when it begins with you, what that does mean is the renewal part of the cycle. Even though you don't pray that, God understands, God gets it, don't, don't worry about that. And so what happens is people begin to pray that, and actually praying that has an impact on how people kind of loosen up their closed mind and closed doors to what God can do. Thesis 68, few Christians, pastors, or staff have been trained to pray by laying on of hands and anointing with oil. And some people just really freak out when you mention this. But there's something about touch, and it just is very important. It says if somebody has a need, if someone's sick, go lay hands on them and anoint them with oil. Now, you may not have anointing oil all the time, but you can always lay, lay on hands. Now, I decided to start something because I just love my kids. I've loved my kids at every age that they have been. They're now in their mid-30s. And I love them, and I love their spouses, and now we have grandkids, and I love them. But at every age, and they weren't always perfect, believe me. They were a handful sometimes, just like everybody else's. But I have really loved being a father, and I just think that the birth of children is just such an amazing miracle. And I think that the whole pregnancy thing is just God at work in such an amazing way. It just blows my mind. So I decided that I would try something that's really sounds kind of risky. It is risky, I'll be honest. It's risky. But I just care so much. And you got to be careful about this because sometimes a woman is overweight. And if you ask her if she's going to have a baby, then basically you're just telling her she's fat if she's not pregnant. And you got to be really careful about that. But you know as well as I do, there's a certain shape that takes place toward the end of a pregnancy. A little bit earlier, if you're having twins, as I learned just the other day, talking to a lady at a gas station. But anyway, I just say something like, hey, it looks like you're going to have a baby. And they say, yeah. And I say, you know, that's just awesome. That's just wonderful. And then I say, can I pray for you? Can I give you a baby blessing? And you know, I've never even had a strange woman. And this is odd. I know a guy doing this with a woman. You don't even know each other's names. But I actually 
ask them if I can put a hand on their stomach that's protruding way out. And I'm very careful about that as to where I put my hand. But I put my hand and I pray for that baby and I pray for that mother, that has such a lasting impact. And I've never had anybody have any sexual inappropriate thoughts. I mean, these people are just blown away that you would pray for that baby. And I know because of the world we live in, I know they're not all Christians. They just can't be all Christians. And I don't even ask. I just go on my way. But I got to believe that thought is going to stay with them. And I'm sure, I'm absolutely positive, I can't prove it, but I absolutely feel 100% that those people go home and tell their husband or their significant other in the case that they may not be married, I had a guy pray for our baby today. I just think that the touch, the laying out of hands is very important. And I know it has to be very sensitive and careful and you have to be really above board I think it's worth the risk. Number 69, this is our last one. Most pastors and Christians have not been trained in deliverance ministry. This is when people have a demon, the way the Bible talks about it. And I know this freaks some people out and it freaked me out as a pastor. My first encounter with a person with this demon was one of my church members who was into a lot of bad stuff. And basically, I came to the house at the request of the husband, who was absolutely freaked out because his wife was speaking in a guttural male voice. And I don't want to scare you and I don't want to get you upset or, you know, give you some kind of message like this guy's a weirdo. Let's not listen to any more of these theses. But the truth is, there is no evidence in the scripture except that all to the contrary that this stuff isn't real. It is real. Now, Hollywood has really bastardized the whole thing. Excuse my French, but I'll tell you what, they just make this big hullabaloo about it and, you know, how they do in Hollywood. It's not that way at all. It isn't scary at all. It's very powerful. It will improve your faith. A lot of Christians have relegated the enemy, Satan, to the category of Santa Claus and Easter Bunny, and that just isn't so. You have to be true about what's in the Bible. You have to be honest about what's going to happen. And yes, spiritual warfare is real. Well, I hate to leave you on that note, but that's the last one for this episode. That'll give you something to think and talk about. I hope you'll forgive me if I stretched your comfort zone. But hey, Jesus did it all the time. See you next time when we get into episode number eight. We'll look at theses number 70 through 81. So we're getting close to the 95 and working our way there. Hope you're having as much fun at this as I am. And hang in there. God is real, and he's on the move today. You have been listening to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. If you've liked this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to hear future episodes. Check out Kent Hunter's new book, Who Broke My Church? Seven Proven Strategies for Renewal and Revival, available now wherever books are sold.